Welcome to the Purpose and Principles podcast. I'm Max Brown, and my guest today, well, I'm super excited. His name is Roger Martin, and he's the former dean of the Rotman School of Management and the world's number one management thinker in the Thinker's 50, and believes the problem is that we view our economy as a machine that can be perfected by pursuing increasing levels of efficiency. And when I heard this, I said, I want to know more. His new book is called When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Um, and that's what I'm excited about. But I also like the more friendly tone of his his biography in Amazon. And so I was reading a lot of things, trying to get to know this guest a little bit better. And he just says, I'm a strategy consultant and a business professor, a dean of 15 years. But your passion, of course, is exploring mysteries related to the ways we think about or model our world and how that model impacts the way we behave. Roger, thank you for joining me on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am so excited about this new book, and I know you've written a lot of books, but I, I, I would love to, if you could just give us a premise for what is it that we've been doing where efficiency isn't always better? Sure. Well, we've, we've taken something that's good, as I say, like more ice cream is good, uh, but only to a point. Uh, and what we've done is taken efficiency as this goal and pushed it so far that in, in, in a particular way we've pushed it, that has resulted in something that we don't want, need, uh, expect. Uh, and what that is, is uh, an accidental stagnation of median incomes and a divergence between average income, which is, which is skewed by people with really high incomes going up and median in, income. And what worries me is that in a democratic capitalist system, 51% of people have to vote uh, to maintain it. And in some sense, the median family, you could think of as kind of the swing voter, uh, or at least that band around the median. And if the median, if your economy is pursuing efficiency in a way that causes them to stagnate, uh, they will eventually give up mm. the idea of this democratic capitalist uh, system and start trying other things. And that uh, makes me worried because the last time people, we did that advanced economies did that was in the great depression uh, where uh, people sort of started to question, does capitalism work? And in a goodly chunk of the developed nations in, in the world at that time, mainly in Europe, but also in Asia, uh, they went uh, either socialist fascist or communist. Uh, America said, we're going to shift to the left, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the New Deal, but it was still avowedly uh, capitalist, de democratic capitalist system. So my concern is, is, that, is that we have a, potent, a crisis of confidence in the democratic capitalist system to produce benefits that are widespread enough uh, across the entire uh, population for people to say, we believe in this, maybe we can tweak it, maybe we can improve it, but we believe in this system. Yeah, I appreciate that introduction to the to the book. And uh, of course, we can see one another and I'm smiling and, you know, I'm agreeing. But for our listeners who cannot obviously have the, the, the perspective of video, I, I am thinking about how do we help people understand that this system 
needs to be protected and actually built upon, right? This 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 capitalist system actually has a way of actually uh, lifting a lot of people if people, like you said, believe in the system and understand that the system works. The challenge is, is if it goes to the extremes and can't create that value, as you suggest in the book. What does this mean for us going forward? How do we? How do we? Where? Do, how do we get here? Where efficiency by every means or every you know by every means possible becomes the the expectation. Yeah. Well, I mean, for starters, you're you're absolutely right. For for two hundred years, I would argue that 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 average family, the median family in America, was absolutely correct to uh, believe in and bet on the future of the of the current system, because during most of those two hundred years, the vast majority, the median family moved forward smartly. In fact. Uh, from the time we started measuring median family income through to 1976, uh, median family income was growing at a clip that meant in real terms, it doubled in a generation, doubled every every 30 years, so approximately a, a generation. So a median family could could say, hey, you know, my kids are likely to be twice as well off in real terms than they are today. Fantastic. But since 1976, that rate has dropped to a quarter of its previous rate. And the implication then is that uh, that median family's income will double in a hundred years, a century, three plus uh, uh, generations. So it was working. Um, and in fact, the pursuit of, of, of greater efficiency made the, the economy more productive. And until 1976 or there, thereabouts, I uh, use that as a marker year because it's sort of the, the bicentennial, so it's sort of an important year. But somewhere in the 70s, there was a, a gap that was created between increasing productivity. So you made your operation more productive, more efficient, and wages. Uh, in fact, wages stagnated almost entirely while productivity kept kept uh, uh, going uh, forward. So that so something happened. And the something that I believe happened is that when we pursued efficiency the way we did, for starters, we used proxies for that. We would say, well, more efficient means keeping our labor costs down, which means you know, making sure we get rid of what might be thought of as excess personnel and keeping co- uh, uh, wages per hour uh, down, going to sunbelt states to get to get uh, rid of uh, unions, outsourcing jobs to to faraway uh, uh, countries, and an economic policy will allow you know capital markets to merge uh, so that we get more efficient pools of capital where the bid ask spreads in, in our in our equity markets and our our bond markets are are lower so anything that that made us more efficient measured by in, in these ways was both accepted and actually nurtured in in policy and the tricky thing is that when you do that it turns out and complexity theory theorists have now studied this, it turns out that distributions that may have started out in a more kind of normal bell shape, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when, when we think of, you know, bell shape, we, we think of that as the 
as the outcome economically for families, right? There'll be a big, you know, why do we say there's a big middle class? Well, that's the middle of the bell, right? And then we have tails of poor, poor people and tails of, of richer people. But that sort of democracy and capitalism together is supposed to produce that as an outcome. And then for, for and that was largely the outcome for 200 years. And in addition, that that curve essentially moves to the right to higher incomes over time. So everybody is, is better off. It turns out that if you apply more and more pressure to a system that has that kind of shape, um, it has the effect of turning it into a different shape. If you will, it's as though a weight gets put on top of the, the middle of the bell and it gets pushed down. And what happens is you get a long, long tail with outcomes that are really high and extreme uh, outcomes. So for example, uh, male height is normal, adult male height and female height uh, uh, is normally distributed, bell-shaped. And in that distribution, the tallest person in the world at the 99.99% is less than twice as tall as the median adult male. That's the kind of distribution you have. It's a narrower distribution. If you look at Instagram followers, for everybody on Instagram, the median number of followers they have varies between 100 and 150 followers, right? The greatest number of followers any individual has, last time I checked, was Cristiano Ronaldo, the, the uh, European soccer, soccer player, uh, Portuguese soccer player, had 216 million. So rather than the, the high being less than twice the median, here the high is a million times greater than the median. Think about that, a million times. And that's what is called a Pareto distribution, named after this guy, Wilfredo Pareto, who was a, uh, in the late uh, 19th century observed that 20% of Italian families own 80% of the land. And that's where we get the 80-20 rule. Those are Pareto distributions where a very few uh, points in the distribution have disproportionate uh, kind of uh, uh, results in this case in wealth it's disproportionate wealth and instagram followers is disproportionate number of followers so democratic capitalism is set up to work with kind of a more bell-shaped uh, set of outcomes and we've accidentally produced a more pareto set of outcomes where more and more you've got a bunch of people uh, having not so much, not so much wealth or not so much income and a few people having a whole lot. And, and this would be reflected in what happens with economic growth. As of 1980, if there was a dollar more economic growth in the economy, you took the economy and added a dollar, it had the greatest likelihood of ending up one way or another in the pockets of somebody at the lowest end of the distribution. Mm -hmm. So we were doing a good job. And in fact, your probability of getting that dollar uh, shrank as you were higher and higher up in the distribution. So the person at the 99th percentile had the least likelihood of getting that dollar. And the, and the person at the lowest had the greatest likelihood, which is, I think, kind of economically quite wonderful. Um, by 2014, a mere 24 years later, the curve is exactly the opposite that dollar was least likely 
to end up in the pocket of the person at the fifth percentile or first percentile. And by far and away, the most likely to end up in the pocket of the person at the 99.999th percentile, somebody who's making $50 million a year or more. That's, that doesn't work, right? That just doesn't work. That is not what I would consider to be sustainable within the framework of democracy because people are just going to say, you know, this is supposed to work for most of us, not just a few of us. And I, and I, and I would say, Max, I have nothing against the people at the top end. I don't think they're mean, awful, terrible people or something mainly other than hedge funds. Um, um, but it just is not sustainable. It's not the kind of economy that I would ever want and could ever really feel good about and, and uh, support. And I think increasingly that's what you're seeing uh, uh, among Americans saying, gee, I thought I was kind of doing everything I'm supposed to do. I was getting an education and I was working hard and, and trying to get ahead and I just don't seem to be. But those people certainly do. Uh, and what, what's, what's the deal? Why is that happening? Mm. And yet you, and yet, you know, the, when you started the conversation today, your concern was, is that when people start to say that they say, well, then there must be an alternative. And that's why you say people turn towards fascism or socialism. And, and are you arguing then that in order to protect, to protect the system we have, we need to make sure it gets back to a distribution that is not representative of a social, you're not suggesting a socialist uh, model or a, uh, 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 or a fascist model is that correct i mean that's not what uh, we're no suggesting. that's correct I'm, those those are the models i'm 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 uh, afraid of uh and uh uh and and i think all we have is this object lesson a lesson of what happened in the great depression that says those are threats and, and you know i started the work on the book max in 2013 there was no bernie sanders there was no there was no uh, AOC squad, there weren't, you know, 40% or more of, of young people saying socialism, ah, yeah, that we should, we should maybe give that, give that a try. And so in some sense, I think what's happened, uh, is, is, is a reflection of that. My concerns were more well-founded, uh, than not. And, and as you know, from reading the book, we did this persona project where we talked to average Americans, went in depth uh, with them, average Americans. And a, a huge theme was, was this bewilderment. It's like, I thought I was doing it all correctly, like a good American, and it's not working out the way I expected it to. And I can promise you their expectations weren't sort of the moon and the stars. I'm going to be a, a multi-billionaire. It's sort of no, I'm going to be able to be able to afford a, uh, afford a house, uh, take care of my kids, uh, give them a college uh, education, uh, um, and not, not die deeply in debt. Like it, it, it's modest, modest goals where they're saying it's not, it's not working out that way. And that's, deeply problematic. Yeah, I um boy my head is spinning. <laughs> my head is spinning. I mean, what do you say? I mean, I there's so much we could do here and and obviously with the time we have, we won't be able to discuss nearly what what I I'm thinking, you know, like multiple multiple conversations, multiple multiple channels of where this could go. 
And um, you know, we work in very complex systems, but maybe yeah. just from my from my world, you know, I grew up um, in a family where uh, it was it was not it was not easy, uh, but we didn't we didn't um, we didn't go hungry. But my mom and dad oh. adopted eight kids and fostered a hundred over twenty years, and I'm oh the oldest of goodness. and what I'm the oldest of five. Yeah, so, you know, so I'm the oldest of 13 brothers and sisters and then 100 foster brothers and sisters that came in and out of my home. And my mom and dad taught me that we need to give even when it's hard yeah. um, and, and to serve and to help people, but um, that, that we shouldn't be forced. I mean, that's, that's the problem. I know this could become very political very quickly, and I really don't want our business audience to, to lose the fact that this is going to get into very business-oriented very quickly. I had to choose when I went to school where I would go to school that would be affordable to be able to mm -hmm. go to school. But I also had to get, a, uh, you know, uh, 4.0s, uh, you know, in order to get academic scholarships, in order to yes. get whatever I could to pay for it. One of the yeah. concerns I have right now is that a lot of people are not making a choice based on an economic decision where they go to school. They're just saying, hey, I'll saddle up with all this debt because it's easy to get and it doesn't matter and I can go do all these things. I was going to school trying to reduce any debt I could. I, I did have to take a few school loans, but I, I, I worked full-time and went to school full-time, didn't go to the football games, didn't go to the parties, didn't do any of that because I was working my butt off so that I would keep my debt levels low. And I, yeah. and I chose schools that were affordable so that I wouldn't go into massive debt. So I, I, I guess part of me is saying, you know, I had to make choices based on my economic situation. And my mom and dad couldn't afford to pay for school. So I paid for school. I paid right. for all my school and I yeah. paid for, you know, it wasn't because they didn't love you. You know what I'm they, saying? I mean, they just couldn't do it. No. Yeah. They couldn't Absolutely. do it. So when kids, you know, today argue for me, um, that the school thing or that, you know, they're in debt and it didn't work. I'm, I'm kind of like, well, I sacrificed a lot to make my decisions and we paid for two bachelors, two masters and my wife's PhD. Yes. And, with very little debt because we worked. Yes. No. And and um, and I guess what I, what I'd say is one is you know your parents are exemplary. They raised you in an exemplary way. You've you've had an exemplary uh, life of investment, uh, kind of uh, in yourself and your capabilities, so that you can do better stuff in the world uh, and better stuff uh, uh, for the world. Um, and uh, and so yeah, I like I totally totally respect that. I just want to make sure that that continues to be possible. Yeah. So I do agree that that you know the, the we're debt financing more things than than we ever ever did, and getting into in, into trouble by not seeing the consequences of of when you have when you have large piles of debt personally or corporately or or uh, societally. Yes. Um, and so I I I would agree that that we're being kind of lackadaisical about uh, some of these things. And I don't, I don't have a desire to see an economy where it's made too easy because that isn't how the world works. But I don't want to also see one where it is too hard and too many of the benefits ha ha are going to people at the very high end of the distribution. Mm. So the good thing about your story, Max, is you didn't come from the high end of the distribution. You maybe came from some somewhere, let's say, ten percentage points on either side of the median, maybe, right? Something. It sounds like something, something uh, uh, like that. Um, and uh, uh, 
but you were able to and you were able to invest in a way that's enabled you to have to have a, a, a you know a productive uh, a life uh, and do the things that could help you help you do that. I just want to make sure that kind of ability and mobility is is still available, and it feels uh, from all the analysis I've done that that is markedly different for for people who are your kids' age, yeah. let's say, versus versus uh, you. And I. And I'd want to see what what we need to do to get it back to the to the way it was in terms of in terms of possibilities for somebody who at twenty you at twenty uh, rather than you at twenty uh, in uh, in twenty twenty. Yeah, it's interesting. I am. That's why I love these conversations, and I love this podcast. I love the book because it does help me to expand the thinking I have around systems and adaptive systems and complex systems. And yeah. I think the argument you make that we reduce things so many times, we have a tendency to try to reduce very complex things into their most simplest form. And in some ways, that's very helpful. And in other ways, it can be um, uh, um, misleading. It can actually lead us, lead us to blind spots, thinking that if we break something down to its simplest form, oh, that's simple, let's just solve that. Not thinking about the other parts of the system that interact with that piece. And we, and we solve for things that aren't actually solvable that way. Yes. No. And you're right. And and I mean, we both done our, our our MBAs, right? And that's that's what my MBA did, and I suspect yours did. It said it said, Max, don't think about anything now about marketing. You're in a marketing course, and we're going to teach you the four P's of 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 marketing. Um, and did the professor ever say, but Max, when you're thinking about those four P's, you should think about what you learned in operations management. And how the choices you make over here will influence the choices you make over there. And the theory that they taught you over there has the following four or five tensions with the theory that you're being taught here in my course. How many professors uh, uh, did that with you uh, during your MBA, Max? Yeah, I, well, I wish I could say that that was more integrated, like you say. I, I, I do feel like I was in a very integrated program. I was, you know, 15, 16 years ago, but they did teach me about complex systems, and I didn't understand what they meant at the time. Yes. And so I was getting introduced to systems, but, um, but you know, I mean, earlier in my career before grad school, I was actually being taught you know, if we just teach these people this, they should be fine. And I and I started saying, well, let's teach team building. And I was teaching team building, and I was traveling all over Asia primarily. You know, teaching companies how to how to trust each other and how to get along. But I started to see that there were complex systems that really impacted the way they trust each other. Complex systems that impacted whether they would work together. And in in one conversation I had, some group called me and said, "Hey, come to Southern China, do this team building event for us." And, and I said, well, can you just tell me why these teams, teams don't get along? And it, it boiled down to this group can use this group's budget. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. And I said, is that ever going to change? And they said, no. I said, you don't need team building. And I didn't understand. Right. I didn't understand that at the time. I didn't understand it. So then I went to grad school and I said, I need to learn. So I went to group dynamics and social behavior, organizational behavior, like you said. And, and, but you're right. I, I think that sometimes we need to understand these, more, these systems are more complex than we give them credit for. What does that mean for us in business? Because in the, in the conversation you write in the book, I, I love that you wrote this. If I, I'll, I'll quote for a moment if I could. Yes. Yeah, sure. You say, I believe this shift needs to begin with abandoning the perfectible machine model of the economy. Yes. 
which is we should instead understand the economy in more natural terms as a complex adaptive system, one that's too complex to be perfectible, one that's continuously adapts in a way that will almost certainly frustrate any attempts to engineer it for perfection. And in addition, you say, rather than striving singularly for ever more efficiency, we need to strive for balance between efficiency and a second feature, which is resilience. A system is resilient to the extent that over time it can adjust to its changing context in ways that allow it to continue functioning and delivering its desired benefits. So we need efficiency and resiliency. What does that look like? What does that look like? And maybe an example from the business world. Sure, sure. So um, what I would, uh, I would use uh, Costco uh, as an example, one of the most successful retailers in, in this country, maybe if not the, the most uh, successful of a, a number of dimensions. So it, you know, it's, it's a club store, it competes at, at, at the very cost price sensitive end of, of the market. So it's got to have a cost structure that enables it to, to offer prices that are really, really sharp or nobody's going to come into uh, Costco. So that's the ground level. So you would probably say that Costco would be obsessed with efficiency. It would be obsessed with keeping labor costs. Well, labor costs are, are an extremely big portion after the cost of the goods that go on the, on the shelves. That, that, that and rent, rent costs are, probably, are the two biggest costs uh, and often labor costs is the biggest of those of those two. So you, you'd say if you were completely efficiency driven, you'd say, let's keep those costs down. And there's two good ways of doing that. One have extremely tight and efficient staffing. So never have more people on the store floor than are, than are, uh, than are necessary for the, for the traffic. Not, not one more cashier, than is required by the traffic. And let's try and keep the wage levels down as much as possible. You know, fortunately, there's lots of people who can work in retail and minimum wages are nice and low, 12, 13, $14, depending on the jurisdiction, maybe, to, you know, actually nine, 10, 11, 12. Um, so that would, be, that would be Costco obsessed entirely about efficiency. Now, if it's actually thinking about resilience as well, not ignoring efficiency, but resilience as well, it'll say, well, as much as we can have these perfect staffing algorithms, actually, you know, sometimes there's just a surge of, of people. And sometimes the people in the store need more help than they would otherwise. So we better have a little bit of a buffer above the absolute efficient, efficient uh, uh, level. And that'll make us resilient for ups and downs in the actual number of hours that you would actually need in a store at a, at a given, uh, given moment. And then I know we, can, we could get as many employees as we wanted at minimum wage, but let's observe what the turnover is in retail for minimum wage employees. Oh, it's about 70% per year so that you're lucky to have somebody uh, staying 16 months. How can they ever get good at serving customers, really understand what's on the short store shelves, uh, believe in Costco and what we're trying to do, build a career there if they're on their way to a 16 month career. So how about this? How about we pay $22 an hour? What most people would say is ridiculous. Like it's not even close to the minimum, minimum wage. And then people will, A, come to work not feeling so worried about putting food on the table, uh, uh, paying, paying the rent, 
Um, they will think that this is a, a career I could have. I could stay here. And what if, what if actually we told them all, we're going to promote almost entirely from within. We're not parachuting anybody in over top of uh, you from the outside. If you do well, you can move up the, uh, the ranks. Well, what'll happen? You know, <laughs> they'll stay, they'll be happy, they'll serve customers wonderfully, and you will have this resilient system where your employees are, are resilient over, over time uh, in, in their own, uh, own lives and working for, for Costco. And, and then how does this show up? It shows up in a more holistic view of efficiency. Isn't efficiency, you know, how many sales per square foot and profit dollars per uh, profit margin per square foot can we produce with our economic system? And how about if even though you have all these inefficiencies, what people would narrowly call inefficiencies, your use of your store is the most efficient in your category by far and, and, and away, and it ain't actually even close. Mm -hmm. So that would be a balance of somebody who said, yes, efficiency matters. If I don't have sharp prices, uh, you know, I'm, I'm toast, mm -hmm. but... It's not everything. It's not the be all and end all. It's part of a, of a, of a solution. And we're going to think more holistically uh, about it. And that's the, that's the key. Again, it, uh, you know, you talked about a complex adaptive system. It is, you, you have to say how my people treat the customer will be a function of how I treat them. And and for me, uh, well, the, your Costco example is a really good one because um, they're they're like you said, sales per square foot is actually double from the examples I've read of their competitors. Yeah, double. You can <laughs> you can do a lot with double. Right. <laughs> and 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 here's another thing that I think is interesting. You can actually have an interesting career at, at Costco, like you said. Um, people actually can make in in many rural states, including the one I live in in Idaho. Uh, you can make a very good career in in Costco. My wife is a teacher of teachers; she's a professor. But um, at Costco, with the benefits and the protections and everything, you can actually have a career there more than the average teacher can make, uh, despite yeah. their degrees and their years of certifications and 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 qual and qualifications in order to be a teacher. Yes, and that is one thing I like about uh, one of the many many things I like about Costco. Like I love Costco. Costco and Jim Senegal is is that unlike your wife who is fortunate enough to have the education to get all the way to, uh, as you said, a PhD, um, Costco is able to take people with, with low educational attainment, relatively speaking, compared to your wife, for, for example, and help them progress in, in wonderful ways. And that just is, that's just great for America as, as far as I'm concerned, because we, you know, if we have an economy that is more capable of, of, if you will, lifting all boats. Now, again, people like your wife didn't get lifted by somebody else and, you know, entirely she got helped, I'm sure, but she had to put, put in the work. These Costco people don't get to be Costco general managers with, with high school education without putting in a whole bunch of work and going to night school and classes and, and, and the like. Uh, but you want, you want the system to provide the possibility of that. If the individual is willing to work, uh, the system helps them 
uh, make that happen. Yeah, it's you know it's it's super interesting. I for those who are listening here, you you wrote in the book again the marriage of democracy and capitalism has arguably has been arguably the best greatest force for good in history, giving the creativity and the enterprise of talented individuals the freedom to generate value in which all of us can share. And history also shows, however, that its continued survival cannot be guaranteed unless we show the system our respect. Yes. And that's what we're talking about today. We're not arguing against democracy. We're not arguing against capitalism. What we're arguing against is when we disrespect the system, then people could lose faith in the system. For my wife and I, we both worked, we went to school 6 a.m. to about 1 p.m., and then we both worked from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m., we did, we worked our butts off and we, we drove very poor cars that barely ran. We lived in a tiny little apartment. We sacrificed everything to get through school. Um, and, and we, but we wanted to keep our debt levels really, really low. She was a hotel yeah. clerk. I worked at a, um, a detention center for juvenile delinquents and, and we worked and we worked for four years and then we had to choose grad school and she was accepted into one of the best programs for a particular group, but the tuition was so expensive, so extreme, that we made a, a purpose choice not to go to that school because we knew the debt that she would come out with would never be paid back in decades yeah. of being able to make that because the salary wouldn't wouldn't would not support that cost, that expense. And so for me, it was we had to make a, a, a thoughtful choice when it come to our economics in our in our program. For me, in in terms of companies. I'm very confused now about the companies who have forgotten this balance between resiliency, the ability to be resilient, and this ability to be efficient. And I think sometimes it's the system, this short-term system, the compensation system that rewards executives for the two-year term that they're going to be in that role versus the long-term health of the company. Is that fair? Yes, it is. It, it is. And I'd like to get to that, but I want to just go back to something yeah, yeah. you said. You said because it's just it, it's yet another good example of of uh, of resilience. So I think the pursuit of education that you, you and your wife engaged in is a pursuit in some sense of efficiency. Education enables you to to do things more efficiently, mm -hmm. right? So I think anybody with a good head on their shoulders could become a doctor without going to uh, medical school at all but it would probably take 40 years and they would kill a lot of people along the way. Right. So medical school is efficient. It takes all the knowledge, packages it up and teaches, teaches you something, right? And so that you can be, you can be a competent doctor faster and, and kill or maim <laughs> way fewer people, hopefully none mm -hmm. uh, on, the, on the way to that. So, so you could make an argument that you and your wife were, were pursuing efficiency, mm -hmm. right? So, so to, to be better at something than you'd have otherwise been without being able to stand, essentially, both of you are in the standing on the shoulders of giants business, right? Figure out what other people have learned and get that in an efficient way from university. What was avoiding debt? What happens when you avoid debt? You're more resilient to a downturn, right? That's the big problem with, with debt. So I would just argue that you and your wife were balancing efficiency and resilience, even if, even if it, it was, you didn't at the time uh, conceptualize it uh, uh, that, uh, that way. Um, but I mean, in, 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 terms, in, terms of, uh, in terms of kind of how 
the capital markets have have uh, have made this made this kind of that gotten this out of balance. Yeah, I, I mean you're you're absolutely right. Uh, which is there's this push for for making short term decisions to make people in the capital markets happy with you, keep off your back, uh, but what will cause you to sacrifice things that are that are farther out. And that is all part of this sort of efficiency trap. And it's, it's part of this trap of having sort of bad proxies for things. And I talk a lot, as you know, in the book about proxies. And so one of the things that is, is one of the worst things that's happened in the entire world of business, I would argue, in the last 50 years is we now have as doctrine, as if handed down on, on stone tablets mm. from the mountain, the notion that your share price today is the best representation of your shareholder value. Mm. Now we say that at the same time, we realize that sometimes the Dow goes down 1200 points in a day and up you know, a thousand points the next day, which I think just makes a mockery of the notion that either of that stock price, the day before that started, the minus 1200 stock price, the plus 1000 uh, uh, stock price, it makes a mockery of the notion that any of them is representative of anything really meaningful, right? Uh, and this is why I tell I tell the story in the book of Li Kaisheng, the you know the richest man in in Asia, great and astute and long term, long 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 Buffett esque uh, investor. When confronted uh, the day after the big crash in the Hong Kong market during the Asian uh, Asian flu, well, uh, Mr. Lee, uh, apparently the, the reporters, you know, were asking Mr. Lee, how does it feel to have lost more money in a single day than anybody in the history of Asia? And Mr. Lee calmly calmly responds, um, uh, "Didn't lose any anything." And they're like, "Ha, we got him." And they had a calculation that showed all of his public stakes and how much they dropped. And it was like $5 billion or, or, or something. And he just says, um, did I, did I uh, sell any shares between yesterday and today? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't know, Mr. Lee. Well, I didn't. And, and they were like, well, what's your point? And he said, I had this stake in this company and this stake in this company and this stake in this company yesterday. I have this stake in this company this day, the, the, today. It's the same company. I have the same views as the future prospects of, of, of uh, these companies over the long term. Uh, some speculators uh, have lost faith in the, in, in, in the very short term, but I didn't trade them. I don't have any intention of trading them and they'll be fine. And sure enough, within, within, not too long of a long creature. They were back at the same, the same, but that's, but those reporters essentially had drank the Kool-Aid that says your stock price today is a meaningful number. It isn't, it is not, that is not what makes you meaningful. What makes you, what is meaningful is, do you have customers who love you? Do you have employees who, who, uh, who love you? Uh, and what are you doing to make sure you're nurturing that love and affection? And do you have an economic model that's going to work over the, over the long, long period? And so we just got to stop, you know, kind of staring at the stock price. And one of, you know, one of my favorite execs, uh, you know, I worked with for a long, long time, A.G. Lafley at P&G, his predecessor, 
at PNG and venerable, you know, 100 and then I guess 60 year old or so company, uh, uh, his predecessor had put stock tickers up in every lobby of every every building because he wanted to focus Proctor on shareholder value, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and he managed to shrink shareholder value by fifty percent during his short tenure as CEO, and ha- and and you know and uh, and be the first CEO of Proctor to be fired in its, its 150, 60 year history at the time. Uh, and one of the very first things AG did was he removed all the stock tickers, right? Because he said, that is not our business. Our business is is making the lives of the world's consumers a little bit better every day with our products. And if we do that well, what do you think is gonna happen to the stock price? Over time, it'll take care of itself, Mm -hmm. which is what stock prices do. Over time, they take care of themselves. And so, sorry sorry for the bit of the diatribe on that, but I'm just in violent agreement with you, which is that that as we shrink that time frame and use these ridiculous proxies, we are severely damaging the resilience of our businesses and the resilience of our economies and creating untold damage to the distribution of outcomes in the economy and undermining uh, democratic capitalism. So that if the CEO does that, he or she is undermining democratic capitalism. And, and that's the point I think we need to emphasize, right? That we want to protect democratic capitalism so that we can thrive for years to come. And you, you suggest that it's, its efficiency has to be balanced with resilience yep. and that pressure, this this ongoing or this unrelenting pressure has to have some friction in order to protect people that are in that pressure system. You have to give people an opportunity to be protected. Like you said, the buffer at Costco, for instance, take some pressure off of those who are already overworked by having some people there that can take that pressure. Right now, we're experiencing all kinds of pressure in healthcare systems. We're experiencing all kinds of uh, pressure in in systems where we have to produce and produce and produce, and it never, never stops. And you're saying that there has to be some friction created to protect these people. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you can, people can say, oh, yes, but that'll make you uncompetitive and whatever. And I say, oh, come on. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if you're, you ever watch NASCAR, but many Americans, Americans do. And on the highest banked tracts, in uh, NASCAR, like Daytona, uh, for any NASCAR, what do they put on the on the carburetors of the uh, of the cars? A restrictor plate. Although they've gone to different technology now, actually, it has a different name. But and that's so that these dry, they, these cars get slowed down a little bit, so that they don't kill all the drivers, right? Um, and so this is an ultra competitive sport. They compete, you know, uh, like that, but. What's a restrictor plate? Friction. It's a bit of friction in the system that makes the system more resilient to shocks, right? More resilient to if somebody gets out, uh, gets going too fast and gets out out, out of line, you don't have a, a forty car pileup uh, and a bunch of drivers in in the in the hospital. So it's just little things like that that put friction into uh, into systems. I mean, we do have some, right? The circuit breakers in the stock market uh, are, are uh, friction. Mm-hmm. It's like when it starts to go wild, we say, we've hit 800 points or 1% or 2%. Uh, 
uh, you know, they've each each capital market has something different. Let's stop it and let's let people calm down before we before we uh, we, we open the capital markets again. Yeah. We just need to do more of that and recognize the degree to which those things are a good thing. There are, of course, many economists who would say all of those are bad. You should just let the capital market, the stock market uh, trade at whatever price it is. That's unnecessary intervention into a perfect system. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> it is It is being, uh, you know, creating a little bit of balance for the, for the unrelenting pressure. Well, I think it's a very interesting argument, and I appreciated, um, you know, your book to just articulate some new ways of thinking. You, you wrote in there, you know, taking the models of the great thinkers to places where those thinkers never would have gone is something we need to be thoughtful of. And sometimes if we get a model in our minds as if it's the only way to answer the world, we might be blind to other things that could help us to answer that model in a more productive way. Or we take the model and we extrapolate it or extend it to things where it shouldn't be extended to. And we could actually that's, do more harm. Like big, yeah, that feels like the big one, Max. It just feels like we're pushing these things to extremes that that were never intended. Um, I mean, if I go back to one a guy, I, he's he's a friend of mine. I like him, Mike Jensen, who's often reviled uh, for for sort of bringing this focus on 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 shareholder uh, shareholder value and aligning uh, the interests of executives with with shareholders through stock-based compensation. I mean, he's considered anchor of that. I mean, he was what he was trying to do at the time was to say, we might have gotten uh, overbalanced to essentially far too much friction, not enough, not enough uh, uh, pressure. We need to rebalance. What did people do? pushed it to the absolute uh, extreme, just like they have with Deming. Deming, you know, was famous, right? Famously said, you know, we should, we should eliminate waste from systems, but every system has an optimal level of slack and it is not zero, right? Mm. But there are many people who would say as they're trying to get slack down to zero, uh, that they're absolutely following the great quality guru uh, W. Edwards Deming, right? And as I say in the book, Deming would be like rolling over in his in his in his grave. So this pushing to extremes of models and 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 making proxies for things we'd want, the thing we'd want, is just getting us into more and more trouble, mm. right? So when Wells Fargo said, you know what, we want very deep and productive uh, relationships with our with our customers, right? And who who could argue against that? Deep productive relationships with your with your customers. But then we're going to define that and measure that by the proxy of number of accounts per customer. Okay, so that's you know that's a bit problematic because that's not the only measure. That's not the only way that you could you could think about it. It's just a way. But then they go over the deep end and say, so to get more deep customer relationships, which has ceased to be deep customer relationships, it's, been, it's now been redefined as more accounts per customer. Why don't we give people in branches an incentive to raise the number of average accounts per customer in their branch? And we'll throw in some punishment too. If they don't do it, we'll punish them. And if they do do it, we'll, we'll reward them. Then what do they do? They open accounts for customers. I promise you, lots of them, millions of them that the customers never asked for. Well, that's that's what happens when you take one of these models 
and and reduce it to simplistic proxies and then push the hell out of that simplistic proxy you get something that you know it's just it's just terrible like wells fargo was was for a long time a, an iconic american company the bank of the west the pony express right you know it it, it uh, uh, and with with historically great customer service and a great brand, its brand may take decades to recover, if if uh, if ever. Uh, and that's what happens when you when you're unbalanced and you're pushing. I want all efficiency. I don't care about resilience. I want all pressure. I do not care about uh, 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 friction. Yeah, I think that's a really good example, and maybe one that we could uh, start to summarize here today. Uh, and bring this to a close, although I know we could talk for hours and hours about these things, because I think these are really important conversations to have. But you're right, Wells Fargo, at the time, 5,000 people were fired, 40% turnover in that division. A lot of people were very flustered. They did not want to create fake accounts, but they did to survive so that they could pay their mortgages. But they did that because that's what they were told to do. Yeah, yeah. No, they were surviving. Yeah, they were surviving. And, and again, and that's, you know, it's just, there should be a little warning light that goes on in the head of any executive who's doing this kind of thing, yeah. which is, it's the golden rule. It's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Would you, right? Like, you know, I would have loved the the head of the, the, the personal banking division of, of uh, Wells Fargo to have sat down and said, okay, so I'm a... Let, let's just say 29 year old single mom with three kids and a mortgage at, at, at home. Uh, and I'm working in a branch and I get told if I don't open more accounts per person, uh, per customer, uh, my job might be in jeopardy. So, I mean, he should just, he should just kind of say that, uh, to himself, uh, and, and, uh, say, and how would I feel? Yeah. The answer would feel would be you'd feel horrible. Uh, you'd feel demotivated. You'd feel trapped. You'd feel and so why do that to somebody if you wouldn't do it to yourself? And the answer is the answer is clear, right? Because I can, right? because he's got he he or she. I, I, it was a, it was a male in this case. The, the head of that the head of that business. He can. But just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Yeah, I believe you and your twelve brothers were probably taught, or brothers and sisters, uh, were, were were taught taught that, and that's where you are today. Why you are where you are today is because you were taught. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And the and a little rule just is, put yourself in that position and ask ask how that would make you feel and what you would be inclined to do, and there you had it. You had the chance to avoid um, tens of billions of dollars of damage to the Wells Fargo brand by simply asking that one simple question. Yeah, for a system that merited very little in terms of profit, it it it, it didn't reward them the way for the amount of risk and the amount of brand damage that it's done in the past. Since then, it was not worth it. Clearly, not worth it. Nope. And and Deming said we should get fear out of the workplace as one of his fourteen yeah. tenets of yeah. great management. 
get fear out of the workplace, and it was certainly was prevalent there in order for those folks to survive. There were some clawbacks, right? There were some clawbacks taken out of the bonuses because of that. But my leading question for, for business leaders today, when I'm out there coaching and consulting and working with clients and doing keynotes, I, my first number one question for, for, for uh, business leaders, what are the consequences and unattended consequences of the things we're measuring? What are we asking people to do that it could actually create bad behavior and go counter to what we actually are trying to achieve? Yeah. And, and I love that question. Uh, and it takes that system dynamics approach. But I would say on top of that question is, mm. and also remember that you're not going to be able to figure out one or two of those things in advance, Right no matter how smart you are, because it's a complex adaptive system, there'll be a couple that you won't remember. And so how alert are you going to be to making changes when you see the first warning sign? Because you don't need to have statistically significant uh, 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 data on this. Like, like, and I bet there were red flags waving in those executives' faces where a customer, one customer would have, uh, have, have written a branch manager or somebody saying, hey, I just got a credit card statement for a credit card I didn't apply for from, from Wells Fargo. You might have a problem here. Don't wait for 20,000 of those or 50,000 of those so you have a statistically significant sample. Recognize that those outlier data points may be telling you an enormous amount about the unintended consequences that you couldn't figure out in advance because it is a complex enough system. So I'd say, I'd say give, them that, give them the advice you gave them and the, you have to have high alert for ones that you didn't even, even think about and I don't. I love that. In fact, I was going to I was going to say, I was going to quote piece from your book again to say business executives need to embrace that they're participating in a complex adaptive system rather than an operating like a machine. That sometimes we think that everything is a machine model and that yeah. machine model can take us far in some ways and then it does us uh, harm in other ways. And so if everything we reduce down to is a machine model, uh, we might not be productive as we can be, right? And that's the key. Sometimes we yeah. have to slow down in order to get better efficiencies. Sometimes we have to do things differently. And and like what you just said, we experiment with leading indicators. And we see if those leading indicators will help us get closer to our outcomes or not. And sometimes those leading indicators work. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they we need to tweak them. Like you said, we need to flex and be adaptable. Yeah. Tweak, 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 tweak. Yep. Yes. Roger Martin. I, I I know we could talk for a very long time. I hope that of what gives you hope, what would you want people to remember as a result of this? Because as we talk to business leaders, we have a lot of leaders out there that are listening to this saying, what in the world am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. You know, And you have a lot of solutions in the book. So what could we do here to help them remember that not everything's a machine model. There are some complex systems out there that we can't, we just won't be able to solve for, but that we know that helps us to be able to manage within that complex system. Yeah, I, I guess I would say the, the most simplest and comprehensive advice I would give to business leaders in, in this was just think about your humanness um, and ask the thing I'm doing, how would an, uh, uh, just a regular human like me, or maybe if you're a successful executive like me before I had power and the power and authority and, and money that I, that I currently have, 
what would a human being think? And, and that'll, that'll get you 80% uh, to the answer. And I think it'll wipe out the tail of the distribution that you don't want, the negative tail of the distribution. You'll say, oh, I would hate that. Well, then don't do it, right? Think harder, think about the next thing. So that, that would be my, my, uh, my simple one. That should be the, re the red flag. Um, is this human? Or is this, is this some kind of technocratic construction that I've been talked into believing would work when it isn't terribly human? Well, thank you for that. You know, the Toyota production system, before it was named the Toyota production system, was called the Respect for Humanity system. Really? I did not yeah. know that. Interesting. Yep. Huh. And Respect like for Humanity. I'll use that. Yeah. It, and you can look it up. I mean, anyone can yeah, just look no, that I up. No, I believe it. Respect for humanity meant to see the humanness in people. Ritsuo Shingo, my sensei, would talk, walk me through factories in, in Japan, in the U.S., all over, different companies. And one of the things he would always teach me is every person he would watch, every operator creating value for us in this company, he would say this, after 15 to 20 minutes of observation, what have we done as leaders to enable that person to succeed. Beautiful. It's, well, that's and, and that's exactly what you're saying. That's very human. Yeah. Cool. Listen, thanks, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time with me, Max. This was a, was a very enjoyable conversation. I have enjoyed it immensely. And to all of our listeners, please remember this great book, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency by Roger Martin. Roger, thank you for being my guest on the show today. Not at all. You take care. Thank you.